Kia ora, and welcome to Paul Conway, who is the Chief Economist at the Reserve Bank. Paul, um, great to see you. Um, been a busy week. Tanakwe, Bernard. Yeah, it has been. Another busy week, I should say. Great to get the latest monetary policy statement out the door. Uh, on top of our, what we're calling RAFIMP, five-yearly review of monetary policy, which went out the door a week and a half ago. So yeah, feeling actually pretty satisfied to get those two chunky bits of work yeah. uh, out into the world. And it's been a big week because 75 basis points is the biggest hike since the Reserve Bank started using the official cash rate in mm. 1999. Nice. And there's been a hike every decision so far this year. And for a generation of people watching interest rates, thinking about mortgages and thinking about the economy, they've never seen 7% inflation and 400, four percentage points of uh, yeah. increases in the official cash rate before. So could you explain for people why there's been such a, a big change, uh, why there was um, also a big increase in the forecast track for the official cash rate. Uh, what What's changed in three months that meant that the Reserve Bank has had to do all these things? Yeah. So it's it's we've been tightening policy for a little over a year and we've done 400 basis points or 4%. We've increased the official cash rate from a sort of emergency low of 0.25, which was put in place uh, in 2020 going into the pandemic. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a very, as you said, it's the most rapid, uh, escalation in the official cash rate since we've had the official cash rate, um, which is sort of, it speaks to how quickly the economic environment has changed from one in which you know, going into that pandemic, it was all, it was a pretty, a very serious, uh, risk of a massive recession, if not a depression and double digit, uh, unemployment, um, impinging on people's well-being. And the call then was, you know, let's sort of go hard, both in terms of fiscal policy and in terms of monetary policy. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we get, uh, 18 months, two years down the track, um, and all of that worked. And instead of having double digits, uh, unemployment, we've got inflation, uh, up at seven, 7%, 7.3, 7 7.2%. 7 so, you know, essentially that's what we're pushing back against is how do we get that? How do we contain inflation? For 20 years or so, the sort of engine room of the global economy and our economy um, had a certain speed limit capacity and seemed to be able to handle quite low interest rates without generating lots of inflation. Mm. What's changed in that engine in the last couple of years that means yep. that we're we're past the red line and we're overheating. Yeah, I do think the pandemic sort of, you know, that accentuates trends that were already underway uh, in the economy. So over that pre-pandemic period, economists, you know, we used to talk about the great moderation where the business cycle was, you know, really minor, inflation was low and stable. The challenge was actually to get inflation up uh, to the, 2% to the midpoint of the Reserve Bank's uh, target band. And that was tough, you know, which was a good problem to have in, in hindsight. Uh, but the reason being, you know, we lived through uh, like positive supply shocks, so technology shocks. Um, so we were getting better at producing stuff. Um, you know, and we also had globalization came along and China became the, the workshop of the world and sort of exported deflation. Uh, in terms of you know cheap cheap products that were made very uh, efficiently, very uh, competitively, uh, demographics were also on our side. Uh, the the working age 
population was increasing uh, over that time. And workers, you know, we tend to um, produce more than we consume because we save, uh, ideally. Uh, again, you know, which is deflationary. And a lot of those things have turned around. So globalization, I don't sort of buy into the, um, you know, I don't think it's going backwards, um, but it's definitely peaked uh, and it's definitely changing. And the world is sort of splintering into different factions of, or clubs of countries. Um, so, so globalization, at least for the meantime, isn't being that sort of dependable deflationary force um china the sort of inward migration of of people from uh from from the west of the country or to farms in the west to the cities uh in the east has sort of slowed down and, and that demographic uh change has also slowed down we're back to sort of worrying about aging populations uh around around the, the world the oecd uh including here in new zealand now that they're all sort of big slow moving forces uh, but as I said, the pandemic has sort of hastened uh, that switch. So I think going forward, you know, obviously we're grappling with too high inflation at the moment and a, a labor market that's sort of overheating beyond maximum sustainable employment. Um, but I think, you know, and we will sort all that out definitely, but I think we're entering to an economic period that is a bit more volatile uh, where these kinds of supply shocks uh, come along a bit more regularly. Uh, we will probably will see that sort of you know, underlying inflation a bit higher uh, than what it's been uh, over the last decade or two. Let's talk about those um, demand and supply shocks. Um, you can understand there's been some demand shocks uh, in that a few more people had a bit more money during COVID. Um, there were cash uh, payouts all around the world yep. from governments and sometimes to companies. And we had had very low interest rates for a long time. And uh, in some places, people use quantitative easing to push down interest rates further yep. out. And New Zealand did that for the first time. So there's, that's on the demand side. I get that. But on the supply side, I'm trying to understand what are the permanent supply shocks mm. and what are the ones that might be temporary. I can see with COVID... That, you know, people had to stay home for a few weeks. Maybe there are a few people sick. But how much of the COVID supply shock is permanent and therefore we have to really adjust for it and think about it? And how much of it is temporary mm -hmm. that maybe we could just let go through to the keeper? Yeah. Uh, like, you know, like those first, you know, when we're all in lockdown, you know, that's a huge supply shock, shock to the supply side of the economy because not all of us could just keep on working. Uh, from home, but, you know, obviously temporary because we can't do that for the rest of our lives. Um, so that's kind of been and gone to a large extent. Although, you know, sickness is higher now than it used to be. And that is, uh, you know, I, 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 who knows how that's going to play out in terms of ending. And I think that that is significant. Uh, in our last MPS, we were factoring 2% of the labor force being out at any one time uh, with COVID and with winter illnesses, which will be easing up a bit now as we move into into summer. Uh, but again, you know, that's that's a supply shock that's at least semi-permanent in that it's persisting into the future. You know, when you, you could think about other supply shocks coming out of the pandemic uh, around what economists call scarring effects, so like education. You know, I think for a lot of, you know, especially I was really feeling for the sort of year 12, year 13 kids who had exams. Uh, and even first year university where it's meant to be all fun and you sort of come together and all that. So it kind of didn't happen. Um, and I think there's a risk there. And we're sort of seeing it with low 
um, you know, rates of kids going to school, that sort of scarring effect that can persist uh, for some time into the future. It kind, of, it kind of cuts to the question that central banks were grappling with last year uh, around is the inflation that we were starting to see then, is it going to be temporary uh, or is it going to be persistent? Because if it's temporary central banks, we just tend to look through it because there's nothing we, especially if it's something like an oil shock or something like that, there's nothing we can do about it. So, you know, no sense in sort of changing interest rates, throwing the economy around uh, to sort of deal with this shock that we can't do anything about and that'll sort of look after itself in due course. Um, but if, if, if inflation persistence is, is more permanent, uh, so getting into the sort of core inflation and inflation's feeding into wage expectations and then wages are feeding back into, you know, higher prices, that is exactly the kind of thing that a central bank will lean against. So, yeah, I don't, we, we haven't exactly... Like, I think the inflationary pressures we've been living through, you know, they're obviously more permanent than people were thinking a year or so ago. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's there's still a, a reasonable possibility that some of that inflationary pressures will fall away uh, reasonably quickly uh, next year. Touch wood, fingers crossed. So that was COVID supply shock. And then no one knew what Vladimir Putin had up his right, sleeves. Exactly. So that's a supply shock for the energy market that's right not just oil and the russian gas but of course um that's uh, unleashed all sorts of forces around the uh, world energy system with electricity and gas and lng and all of that how much do you think of the russian invasion of ukraine is again a temporary supply shock that we can let go through to the keeper and how much is the permanent thing we have yeah. to like really think about. Yeah. It's kind of like we've been exposed to a, a whole series of supply shocks. Um, so, you know, the pandemic was one and we responded quite appropriately, uh, to, in, in my mind with, um, you know, fiscal support and, um, and really loose monetary policy to keep people attached to the labor market. Uh, so, so incomes actually didn't take a hit. Uh, over that period, which is one reason why demand stayed quite strong through that period. Well, the economy was dealing with that supply shock in terms of, um, you know, well, the labor shortages kind of came a bit later, but, you know, really tight labor market supply chain uh, disruptions. And then just as we were sort of getting our heads around all of that, along came the conflict in Ukraine, which, as you say, put major uh, sort of shudder through global energy markets. Uh, and through global food markets as well, I think between them, Russia and the Ukraine exported like 13% of global calories uh, prior to the pandemic. So, you know, this, this has been massive and is causing all sorts of problems throughout the world, you know, developing countries in terms of food prices and, you know, hunger's going, going up and all that sort of stuff. And, and to some extent, we're a bit isolated from it here in, in New Zealand, particularly the energy aspect. I mean, yes, we get it through uh, oil prices, but, you know, we're obviously self-sufficient in terms of electricity uh, and the like. What, what you see when you look at inflation rates around the world, sort of countries that are closest, you know, Eastern European countries into Western, that, that's kind of the epicenter of high headline inflation that's being driven by high energy costs and high food uh, costs. And sort of the further away you get from that, uh, the less those costs are impacting on headline inflation. So in New Zealand, for example, our headline inflation rate currently is among the l lowest uh, in the OECD, which is not to say it's, it's still far too high and we have to fix it. 
but in a relative sense, uh, you know, we're being spared the worst effects uh, of of that of that crisis. How much then of the inflation do you think comes from overseas, and how much of it is generated here? Because we've mm. had people with COVID as well, and obviously with the restrictions on people coming in and out through COVID, our right. ability to add extra labour into the labour supply. Mm. So we've got a we've got a, a labour supply shock, I suppose you'd call it there. How much of the inflation, uh, you know, is overseas demand and supply, and how much of it is New Zealand demand yeah. and supply? It's kind of, I mean, it's it's a little bit tricky to separate them because you know, like we call you know, tradables inflation, inflation that comes over the border, you know, goes into inputs of businesses, and then you know they it affects the prices of their products, which you know might be what we call non-tradable, sort of homegrown inflation but best estimates at the moment uh you know of that 7.2 percent where inflation currently sits is that half sort of originated overseas and about half uh is is homegrown it's sort of you know those that pandemic and the russia ukraine thing those um external inflation shocks or tradable inflation shocks they kind of came over our border and they hit you know a really tight labor market uh and then did sort of set off uh, you know, contributed, kind of kicked off that homegrown or domestic uh, inflation that, that we're now, uh, you know, pushing back against. So it's been a really interesting period in terms of inflation dynamics. And as you say, many people, listeners, uh, won't have seen this before. You and I are lucky, Bernard. We've actually seen it before <laughs> in the um, right. late 80s. That's right. Uh, and for those people who wonder, gee, um, it's not my fault that we've got all this inflation. Um, I didn't do what Vladimir Putin did, and um, COVID uh, is is someone else's mistake. Uh, how come I'm now having to pay for it with higher mortgage rates? Can't we just, mm. you know, wait for this to wash out of the system and um, and and no one get hurt, no one loses their jobs? Yeah. Um, so, like, first of all, the labour market is so strong that everybody. You know, there's there's a lot of jobs out there at the moment. The, you know, there's a lot of vacancies out there at the moment, uh, which is great. Like that's a real bedrock of our economy at the moment. And if the labour market, you know, stays strong, um, you know, we're like we're projecting a contraction in economic growth coming up next year. But you know, it could be a sort of job rich uh, contraction. Like in terms of, you know, it's not my fault. So why am I getting punished? I guess it's sort of you know, we're all part of the system. We're not, you know, we're not islands. Um, so yeah, I do see it as a sort of collective, you know, I see the economy as a, you know, community of people really. And what happens to it affects all of us, uh, one way or another. I mean, the interesting thing about this time around is like, yes, and you're sort of talking about it before demand did, um, sort of in, in some countries, particularly the U.S., because the fiscal response to the pandemic was so strong, um, you know, demand has been strong. But at the same time, all those supply factors have been weakening the ability of economies to supply those goods and services, uh, which is essentially where inflation has come from. Um, normally, in a typical business cycle, in, in, or demand would sort of get out of the box for whatever reason, and we'd put on the brakes and it would slow down. Uh, but now it's 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 more supply side. Inflation is more driven by what's happening on the supply side. Uh, but there's still excess demand in the economy. So it's, essentially, we have to respond in the same way uh, to sort of close. We call it the output gap, the difference between um, aggregate demand and aggregate supply. 
And we have to close that one way or another. Um, and, you know, a productivity shock would be great. A positive productivity shock, not a negative one. We could increase the supply capacity of our economy and that would be disinflationary uh, or greater competition in New Zealand markets. You know, what we're seeing with supermarkets and fuel retailers and the like. I mean, that's all very positive as well. That will sort of keep inflation pressures contained. Um, but, you know, and none of that is likely to have an effect over the next 18 months, two years. So it sort of falls to the Reserve Bank to, um, to engineer a slowdown uh, in aggregate demand. So, so overseas, we've seen the likes of the US Federal Reserve point to higher profit margins there as potentially responsible for some of the inflation. What are we seeing here in terms of whether profit margin expansion is actually part of the reason for the inflation? Yeah, well, unfortunately, we, we don't have great data on, on profits. It's a, I think it's a real sort of blind spot in how, in how we measure our economy. So I can only sort of answer, you know, from an in-principle sort of uh, way. Um, and, you know, it's, it's true that we sort of fret about the possibility of a wage price spiral. Uh, that that higher prices are going to feed into higher wages and so on and so forth. Um, you know, what happens with on the profit side of the equation, uh, if firms are able to increase their profit margins for no good reason, it's kind of it's kind of this battle that's existed over millennia between the owners of capital and the owners of labor. And we sort of economists, we summarize it. Uh, in this thing called the labour income share. So what share of national income is being paid to the owners of labour uh, and what share is being paid to the owners of capital? And I should say, you know, we're, I'm all for uh, higher wages. It's obviously a fundamental driver of well-being in our economy, um, but they have to be based on productivity improvements. So if productivity's going up, we're creating more for less, uh, then there's more you know, sort of surplus for, for workers uh, and for the owners of capital. If wages are going up more quickly than productivity, which hasn't happened for a while, uh, then the labour income share would be increasing. Whereas if, if, if wages are going up more slowly than productivity, then that labour income share would be decreasing. Uh, and what we've been seeing uh, internationally, at least, uh, lately, or at least pre-pandemic, is consistent with what you were that sort of situation you were talking about. Um, so the labour income share has been declining across a bunch of OECD economies as technology has sort of made it easier to swap labour workers out. Um, trade unions sort of don't have the power, the bargaining power that they once had. So, you know, it's sort of been in favour of the owners of capital, and I think that's changing now that pendulum is very much swinging back to being in favor of workers so just the competition for workers in the labor market is is bidding uh wages up um so i think um you know i'd be interested to know more about that brainard stuff in, in the u.s but just sort of economist intuition at the moment tells me that the labor market is so tight uh, and then you have to think about what's competition in the product market. Uh, are these firms competing or can they simply put their wages up because they sort of have got a monopoly or oligopoly uh, sort of position? And if, if they don't, uh, then it's, it's sort of hard to envisage that profit share increasing in any meaningful way uh, at the moment. 
that's kind of my intuition. And yeah, I you know, stand can, to be corrected if we yeah. can get some decent data on it. If you think about labor productivity as a you know very efficient engine that's producing more power with the mm. same amount of um, pistons and gaskets, um, you could argue that an engine where the controllers of capital, the businesses, that uh, effectively increase their profit margins or are able to increase their profit margins because there isn't as much competition in the sector are in a way um, uh, gumming up the engine, if, if you like. And that's, you could argue, that's one right. of the reasons why the engine is overheating because there's too much gum in there. Yeah, that's right. It's what, it's what we're seeing. If you look in our monetary policy statement that we put out yesterday, there's a, there's a chapter in there on wages, uh, which kind of cuts to this productivity issue. Because if you look at uh, what's called the labor cost index, which sort of measures the cost for a business of a lump of labor, like just the same uh, you know, amount of worker doing the same amount of work. Uh, and if you look at wages for that, they haven't been keeping up with inflation. So there's a, there's a, a negative real LCI wage, which we sort of take a bit of comfort from uh, because it means that the chances of that wage price spiral getting going you know, we're not seeing too much evidence uh, of that uh, yet, which is fantastic. Uh, but then if you look at broader measures of what's happening with wages through the quarterly employment survey, uh, and as well as accounting for that sort of lump of labor idea, they also factor in people moving between jobs, uh, people working longer hours, uh, getting promotions, going to other employers. Uh, and when you look at that broader measure of labor, uh, it, it is keeping up with inflation. So real wages in that sense, uh, you know, are, are not too bad given the sort of period that we've been coming through. And the difference between those two is sort of that labor cost for firms is below inflation. So that's good, keeping their prices down. Uh, but in terms of take-home pay for households, it's actually pretty good because, you know, they're sh swapping jobs. So so the the sort of how do you square that circle it's productivity. Like if that extra churn that we're getting in the labor market uh, is is sort of resulting in a better allocation of workers, so workers get the jobs that they're good at, so they're more productive, uh, then that producing that extra output. And and th like this could be a real silver lining uh, of what we've lived through over the last few years. It could be good for our productivity, which as you and I have chatted about in the past is the Achilles heel uh, of the New Zealand economy. So just, just finally, um, for those who, you know, weren't around in the eighties and nineties and are wondering why everyone's so hit up about inflation when perhaps their wages, as you say, in total are rising as fast as prices. So they're not falling behind and, you know, 3.3% unemployment sounds good to me. <laughs> What's so bad about inflation that we have to, you know, really pull the lever so hard? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's. The problem with inflation is, well, there's many problems. Yeah, it's a tax cut. I mean, a tax on your savings and a pay cut rolled into one. And we're just expending a lot of energy on understanding what's happening with pricing dynamics. You know, this is businesses and then feeding into wage negotiations. I kind of think of it like a dog chasing its tail. There's a lot of economic energy goes into just doing all of that stuff instead of focusing. Uh, on what really matters. And, and you know, the, it's a really good question. Inflation's going up or prices are going up. Why is the Reserve Bank turning up and saying interest rates need to be going up as well, you know, inflicting more 
sort of pain on people who have debt. You know, we sort of don't talk so much about savers who probably quite like interest rates going up uh, a, a, a bit. And, and the reason we do that, it's sort of this idea, um, if inflation gets out of control, if it gets embedded in the economy, if people expect, oh, inflation is going to be 10% from you know here to infinity, so I'm going to demand a 10% pay increase. And, and then it, that spiral gets away on us. Um, so the thing is now we just try and slow the economy. We get inflation down in its box uh, because that's the best contribution that monetary policy can make uh, to economic performance over the longer term, just as to bring balance uh, into the supply side and the demand side uh, of the economy. And that's what the monetary policy committee is very focused uh, on doing. And I have no doubt that we will uh, achieve uh, that objective and, and get back to low and stable inflation. Paul Conway, the Chief Economist for the Reserve Bank. Uh, Nami Hinui. Peace out.